Good morning, I'm Pastor Lori Beth, and we have a privilege this morning to be able to hear the word brought to us by our summer Duke intern, seminary student, Mike Shasha. He will be leading as the primary preacher this morning from Durham, and we are excited to be able to hear what he has to say. Now, I think Boone United Methodist may be getting a reputation for giving really hard topics for our summer interns, because last summer, if you were with us, uh, they were preaching from the book of Revelation, which they informed us that most of their other colleagues or, or friends were not having to preach from. And so today we're actually going to be tackling the challenging um, topic of racism as a social justice issue. And we felt like between sermon series that this was a good Sunday for us to take a moment and respond to all that is happening in the world around us and to look at it through that theological lens and to be reminded that if we've read the Old Testament, then we know that social justice issues are one of the passions and concerns of God, and racism is a social justice issue. So I hope you will join me in welcoming um, Mike to, to hear the word that has been placed on his heart that he will be leading us through this morning, and that we can, can open our ears to hear what might God have to say to us today. So I turn it over to Mike. Hey, Boone United Methodist. Uh, my name is Mike Shasha, and as the Lord Beth just said to you guys, I am your summer intern who you have not gotten to meet just yet. Uh, and also, as she mentioned, um, we are going to be talking about a really difficult and challenging topic this morning. And so uh, I want you guys to be ready and to know that this is hard. And these, these are really, really tough things. And so as you're all well aware, the news has been flooded recently with, with two major events. Uh, we've had a, a physical virus, the coronavirus, which has been really ravaging not just our nation, uh, but the entire globe. And, and there's the second uh, more subtle virus, which is the one that we are going to talk about today, which falls more under uh, the mental category or spiritual category. Uh, and that virus is racism. And so but before we dive into what is racism and, and, and how do we handle this, I want to share with you guys a, a story. And so there is a, a fellow divinity student um, who is black, who is a mother of two children. And a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd, I was feeling this need to, to reach out to her, to talk to her, to say, um, hey, how are you doing? What are you feeling? Uh, wh what's going on in your mind and in your soul right now? And when I asked her that question, uh, she said to me when Ahmad Arbery was killed, uh, and for those of you who don't know, he was the gentleman who was running through a neighborhood and was uh, killed by a couple of white men. When, when he was killed, uh, my friend said she was really, really struggling. And then when George Floyd was killed, she said she completely lost it. And so as I was processing this, I felt this immediate sense of uh, almost guilt or shame that not only have these killings happened, but there have been things that have happened over the course of months prior and years prior and decades, and we could maybe even go centuries. And it really wasn't until this George Floyd killing and all the protests that followed that this really, really came on my radar. And so I recognize that as we are entering into this conversation that I am a white male who has some serious blind spots about the things that we're talking about. 
And so before we move forward, Lori Beth, I would I would love to hear when it was that this clicked for you, that something's happening here that we need to talk about. Yeah, thank you, Mike. And thanks for your own vulnerability to share your own blind spots as well. For me, I would say that that the beginning of this really realization of a deeper understanding around race relationships in our country happened to me four years ago in July of 2016. And some of you might remember that uh, there were two back-to-back shootings of black men, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And then three days after that dramatic happening, five policemen in Dallas were gunned down by a sniper. It, It was just, all of it was terrible. And the Dallas shooting happened like on a Saturday, Saturday night. And so we found out about it Sunday morning while at church. And my staff looked at me, this was at a, at a previous church, looked at me and said, what in the world uh, can we do now? Because there had been another shooting in June and we had had the prayer vigil. We'd called for prayer. We had written the articles. We'd had some conversation and it just felt like, This was so overwhelming and we did not know what to do. So I got back into my office after worship that morning. I picked up the phone and called one of my colleagues in Winston-Salem, Reverend Donald Jenkins, who is a pastor of the the sister African-American church uh, uh, near us. And I just said, Donald, help us. We are exasperated. We don't know what to do. Help us to understand. Help us to know how we can support you and your church and community. We just don't know what to do. And that began a beautiful partnership and conversation, not only between our two churches, but also between me and Donald. And I was so thankful to have have him as a sounding board and a friend that I could have honest conversation with. But the conversations that happened between our church people, I had never seen happen to really talk about, honestly, the differences between the white and black experience. And I remember like my aha moment in the midst of that was one day Donald said, so what are you teaching your youth? And we were talking about confirmation and the typical programming that our youth ministry was doing. And he said, yeah, well, for us, I'm going to send you a link. But we've invited a black policeman a couple of times to our church to teach what to do when our young people, when our young people get stopped in their cars, to put their hands at 10 and 2, to be careful and not immediately reach for their driver's license and registration. And when I watched the video that he showed me, I just, I couldn't believe it. I had no idea. I realized in that moment, I had no idea what it was like to live as a person of color in our very white world. And it was heartbreaking. And so today is four years later, and I'm still confused and unsure about my own understanding of race relations. I feel incredibly frustrated that it seems like no progress has been made or has been very slow, that my own progress personally and recognizable progress in our society is just... um, It has just been so slow regarding racial peace and justice. But for me, this conversation began in earnest about four years ago. 
Thank you for that story, Lori Beth. Um, and just this, this call that we have, even if, we, if we're not sure exactly what to do, but as the body of Christ, if there are people that are hurting uh, and, and are crying out and are lamenting, we, our first call is to go and mourn with those who mourn and lament with those who lament and seek understanding and to be able to admit that, hey, we don't, we don't know what's happening here. And so thank you uh, for doing that. And so what we want to shift to in our time this morning is what does God say about something like this? What is God's heart behind justice? And as we were trying to decide what scripture to use, there are so many in the Old Testament. Golly, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, Proverbs, so many choices here. But the one that we landed on, uh, I guess by the Holy Spirit's lead, is Jeremiah 22. And so I'm going to read just one verse from Jeremiah and give some context, and and we're going to dive in together. And so the third verse of Jeremiah goes like this. Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan, and the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And so the context of this verse, right? We hear a lot of of verbs, right? Act with justice and righteousness. Do no wrong. Deliver from the hand of the oppressed. We hear uh, this call to action. And so God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is speaking to uh, what is the kingdom of Judah and and really the city uh, of, of Jerusalem here. And and he is calling them out because they are not living up to the standard uh, of justice. And in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of justice. There's a Hebrew word for justice. It's mishpat. And so there is a retributive justice, which is retribution, which says if you've done something wrong, you will be punished for it. And actually in this scripture, the, the nation here is going to be punished in a retributive way for what they've done. God's going to bring judgment on them for it. But, but all of those verb words, uh, that the calls to, to seek out the disadvantaged and the oppressed, that is a different type of mishpat or justice. That is restorative justice. It is a justice that says we believe that, that these people who are in this society marginalized, right, the orphans and the widows um, and the strangers in the land uh, uh, who would be non-normative in that culture, we believe that they too are made in the image of God. Uh, and so there's this power structure within this passage because God addresses the king, the king's servants or attendants, and all who enter the gates. And so my question is, well, what does the servant have to do with this injustice? How is he playing a role in this? Or everyone who enters the gate? Is it, is it not just the kings who are calling the shots here who should be punished for this? Yet we see that God's call for justice is all-encompassing for those who benefit from this structure or this system that's in place. And that is the kings, that is the servants, that is all who enter the gates. And so you could say that that these kings, what they're doing, and we, and we find a, lot, a little bit later in Jeremiah, that they are exploiting labor in order to build bigger palaces and nicer rooms, and they're not paying wages to the people that are working. And they are shedding innocent blood and they are committing 
violence. And, and these are things that in the law codes of the Old Testament were protected by God throughout many of the passages that we have there. And so folks, I, I'm here to say that that type of injustice, when there is a, a power structure in place and the people in power stay in power and there are people who are oppressed without sustenance who stay oppressed, that is a virus. And so the next question in this is, what do we do with this today? What does God's mishpat or justice look like for us today? And so I want to shift gears just a little bit here. On, uh, on Monday nights, we've begun this, this book study uh, called The Color of Compromise by a guy named Jamar Tisby. And his goal is to actually reveal historically how the church has been complicit in, in what we call racism. And he offers this process of reconciliation. And he says that if we are to be reconciled racially, there has to be truth, so the story. And then we move to confession, which is what is my, our role in this. And then to repentance, which is turning to God uh, and making it right. Uh, and then reconciliation can happen. And so first, we have to focus on this truth portion about racism. And in order to do that, we have to move uh, from this, this notion that racism are just individual acts. Like, for example, when, when we see George Floyd killed, we say the act of the police officer was a racist act. And indeed it was. And in that moment, just like with those orphans and widows in this passage, the very image of God the very humanity of George Floyd, his human dignity was stripped from him. And, and that, that is clear. But what's really interesting is if, if you were to ask someone who is black in America, whether they were surprised by the killing, they would say no, because it's happened over years and years and years. And, and it's part of, of a bigger system that is at play here. And so I want to give you a little example of, of what, a, what, what a system looks like in, in this case. And, and I want to take us back to the 1920s, whenever women did not have uh, the ability to vote. And so when we look at the power dynamic, there were men who were in power and there were women who were oppressed. And, and by being oppressed, they weren't allowed to vote. And so the, the system of oppression here, the women were systematically uh, unable to vote, right? The men were not systematically oppressed. They held the power. They could say whether they could or could not vote, but the women weren't allowed to until the folks in power uh, gave them the ability or the right to. And so it's, it's, it's group prejudice, uh, or group power, excuse me, backed by prejudice. And sort of the underpinning belief is that women are, are less than in that scenario. And so as we talk about race and, and, America, it is a system of oppression that is based on race. And, and I want to be clear that this is not just with black folks, but because uh, what's been in the news has been uh, black folks, that, that's why we're emphasizing this uh, in this particular way today. And so how does racism manifest itself, this system as we are, the structure as we are talking about? Well, for example, uh, the coronavirus is disproportionately affecting black communities in America. 
And why is that? Because there is a, a system in place that doesn't afford them uh, the health care that they need. And, and, and if we're honest about, if you are a person of color in America, from birth, you are already at a disadvantage, right? If you are born into a community that is under-resourced and you don't have access to education and you don't have access to opportunities, uh, there are so many ways and so many things that, that you can work your tail off and, and still not get to a place where someone like myself, who's a white folk, can get to just because of of the, of the opportunities and resources that have been gifted to me that I have not earned. And so there's a system, again, in place that doesn't give uh, the, those resources. And there's another act that you guys might have heard of uh, that's called redlining, where in the, in the early 1900s, um, black communities, there was a line drawn around them on a map. And banks would not give them mortgages or, or loans for home repairs. And so over time, uh, the, the economic disparity between black communities and white communities just grows and grows and grows. And why was that? It was because of the color of their, of their skin. They, they were marked in that way. They were identified as being other or as different. And so when we look at what's happened to George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor, the, the underpinning, the belief that's holding the system where it is, is that people of color are, are less than. And that if, if there's a, a black man running through a neighborhood, that somehow he is a, a threat or a hazard to what is, in our context, the, the majority white culture. And so... Again, the white folks in, in America are the ones who are in power and the people of color are the ones, just like in that story, who are systematically held in, in the place that they are in. And, and I think our sort of gut reaction is to say, well, hey, like, I, I hear about racism, but that's not, that's not me. That's not something that, that I do. I, I don't partake in that. But think about this. Whenever we talk about um, a good school, or a good neighborhood. What do we mean by that? We mean that it's safe, it's up to our standards, and really what, what we mean is that there are, is an absence of, of, or there's a presence of people of color that makes that area bad. And, and if, there, if it's a good area, uh, there's proper schooling and education, and usually a lot of, of white folks. And so even if we don't know it, there are some things inside of us, some prejudices, uh, that are a part of the system that, that we are in. And we, just like the, the servants in the story and all the people who enter the gate in that Jeremiah passage, that, that I as a white male benefit from at the expense of folks who are oppressed. And so this sort of knee-jerk reaction that we have to say, oh, that's, that's not me. Lori Beth, would you speak into what it is that happens whenever, whenever we react in that way. Sure. That, that response of, I'm not a racist. I, I'm not a racist. And I do wonder how, how many of those folks that Jeremiah was prophesying to had that same reaction. Well, I don't oppress the widows and the orphans. I don't, I don't treat the resident aliens, the, the foreigners in our midst um, poorly. But today we, we react with, I'm not a racist. And so why do we say that? Why do we feel like we need to defend that statement um, referring to ourselves? 
And so I want to talk about a couple of terms. You've actually, Mike, done a beautiful job setting up um, parts of this conversation as well. But one book that I have been reading with our Appalachian District clergy and our district superintendent is called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And it's been an incredibly helpful book to me. She's a white author and frames a typical perspective of racism through our white lens. And so she helps explain the concept of white fragility by setting up several beliefs that her studies have shown white people tend to hold as true. So the first one is that only bad people are racist. Only a a person who's racist commits bad acts and I'm not committing those bad extreme acts. I'm not a bad person. Therefore, I'm not racist. The second concept she lifts up is something that that Mike's talked about already. We think about racism as discrete acts that are committed by individual people. Instead of thinking collectively about the system, potential system of racism, we immediately make it about individuals. What has that person done or not done? What have I done or not done? And that keeps us from seeing racism as a complex system in which you and I are participants in. And then the third uh, belief she lifts up is a hard one. She says, white people, us white people, we don't actually really want to look at the system of racism because the embarrassing truth is that this system, it serves us as white people well. So we want to preserve our advantages in the workplace with maybe advantages over hiring or um, being able to climb the, the, the ladder with promotions. We want to preserve our uh, advantage with the housing market. As we've talked about, white people's property tends to be of higher value than people of color's property. We want to preserve our advantage of being Uh, white being the media norm, that uh, the choices we have to choose from um, are incredibly white, and that is comforting to us and gives us an advantage. So for many, many white persons at a deep down inner level, whether we want to admit it or not, there is this feeling that just maybe we are entitled to what we have, or that we are deserving of some of these advantages over people of color. And y'all, this is hard to recognize within ourselves personally. I continue to struggle to see and recognize when I also am feeling these feelings or acting out of this mindset. And then she puts all of these together to then explain white fragility. So when someone starts to have a hard conversation about racism, like we are doing today, us white people can become defensive and we start justifying in our minds all of the ways that we're not racist. And it's because we think that only bad people are racist and we're not bad people. And we jump to that individualism and then we take it personally, so very personally that someone could be implying that we have committed an individual act to harm someone else. And so our white fragility, our defensiveness uh, becomes this powerful tool that actually allows us to hold racism in place because we turn it around 
and we become the victim. Oh my goodness, how dare you accuse me of such an atrocious act or being that kind of person? We become the victim and we keep the hard and healthy conversations from actually happening. So I want to invite you this morning if, uh, to, to reflect on how are you feeling right now? And if you are feeling uncomfortable, why might that be? Could it be that your own white fragility is in play? And can you stop and take a step back, notice your reactions and, and, and kind of hold those reactions and just sit in this uncomfortable space for a moment to see what you might be able to learn about yourself? So another word that is important and probably more familiar than white fragility is white privilege. But this is also one that I, like folks, have had some strong reactions to. But it's important for us to mention it today. The simplest definition is that white privilege is the advantage taken for granted by whites that cannot be similarly enjoyed by people of color. So some people are like, why does this have to be about race? Well, here's the truth. We are at an advantage if we are white in America. We just are, friends. Our starting point, our starting line is further ahead than any single person of color. So hear me clearly, though. To be clear, being white does not mean that you've never faced hardships or oppressions. It doesn't mean that you haven't had, I haven't had struggles to overcome, and that we haven't had to work hard for what we have or what we've earned. But it does mean that we haven't had to face hardships or oppression that are particular to racism, that uh, our brothers and sisters of color have had to overcome on top of the same challenges that you and I have had to overcome. And then the last term that I want to talk about is whiteness. That's another term that may be new to you uh, that has been used uh, more frequently uh, recently. And so what this means, this is referring to essentially all the aspects of being white. It goes beyond physical differences, skin color, hair texture, color of eyes. Whiteness refers to our our material advantages, our cultural advantages, all of the advantages of being white in a white-defined society. And that's probably the most important point, uh, a white-defined society. So it's this lens not only of us white persons looking through the world with our white lens, but actually the definitions of the world, the baseline of the world, is defined by uh, that white lens. So what is beautiful? Those definitions of beautiful are defined by whiteness. Who is most capable to do a job? Those standards and characteristics are defined by white people. What are the norms or ideals for marketing and products in the marketplace? Again, defined by white buyer norms. So a small example of this is, uh, for instance, a few years ago, take women's makeup. A few years ago, foundation Uh, you could find a bazillion skin tones of white in foundation colors, but there would only be a few options for people of color. Whiteness in the marketplace was defining what was on the shelves for purchase. 
For some of us, our whiteness is a bubble that we live in. And because of that bubble, because of that lack of diversity in our lives, uh, we need help seeing things from any other perspective than our white lens. Like, why would we even notice that there weren't a variety of skin tones for uh, black and brown people as well? So, Mike, I think you also have another term to add into our understanding this morning. Yeah, and I think that phrase that you mentioned, which is that that white-defined culture is really important here. Because for us as white folks, we could live our entire lives and never have to exist in spaces that are not white. If I, I grew up in a white neighborhood, went to white schools, I could literally, the traje- trajectory of my life could just be with white folks. And so this, this next term is one that throws us off because we have some strong associations with it. But this phrase, white supremacy, yes. this does not mean the KKK. What white supremacy is referring to is that white culture is what is normative. Again, it's part of who has the power in our country. It is white folks. And so because it is normative and it's, like you said, in stores, there are not uh, uh, products for black folks that even if it's not explicitly named that white culture is found to be superior to other minority cultures in, uh, in America. And so that's what white supremacy is. And so we just covered some terms here, white privilege, whiteness, white supremacy. Lori Beth, um, I know you've had some conversations with some fellow black clergy uh, and, and, and what have those looked like and, and what can we learn from what people who are actually experiencing these things, um, what, what can we learn from them? Yeah, uh, yes, the, the kind of setup to that is to, to just kind of refer back from where I started at the beginning as to where, where I am now and that same feeling of, oh my gosh, like what do we do? And when the George... Floyd uh, killing what happened and the very difficult videos were circulating on the news. They were so hard to watch and trying to make sense of our reactions to that. And then the, the protests that began to bubble up, all of it became a bit overwhelming. And so several of my clergy colleagues, we got together to talk about on Zoom, but we, we, we were talking about what, what can we do? The questions that that my colleagues were asking is, how do we need to lead through this? What do we need to do? How do we need to respond? And there was such a desire to just do something, to make this terrible wrong right again. But in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit just kept saying to me, stop, listen, stop trying to lead through this, and instead see how you can support and follow other leaders that are people of color. Follow their directions. How can you support them in this moment instead of getting in the way? And so I found a couple of places where I could listen to some of my my colleagues that are people of color. And one incredibly helpful conversation was uh, a Zoom gathering of several several women clergy, and, and we, we were all white, but we invited five people of color clergy to join us in that conversation, and it was powerful. It was hard. We just listened, 
there was a lot of anger and frustration. And the frustration was primarily because uh, many of these are friends of mine and all of them are people that I work with that I know. And they were so frustrated because they felt like they've been saying the same thing over and over. And just now, for the first time, is anyone really listening to them? So uh, one of my big takeaways from not only that conversation, but all of the books that I've been reading, the articles and videos that I've been reading was, was this message. Hey, white folk, we need to do our own work here. That, that, that racism is not just a black or Hispanic thing or problem. It is a white problem as well. And as Mike has so powerfully laid out for us, it's a theological problem as well. Uh, In order for us to be faithful to Jeremiah's call for justice, uh, those of us who are white need to spend some time understanding what's really going on. And what is our role? What, What role might we have played in all of this? And to not let our white fragility prevent the difficult work of listening and learning how our perspective has dominated the worldview in America, and that there is actually great value in truly seeing and respecting the beautiful diversity in which God has created this world to coexist in. For many of us, that work begins by sitting in this uncomfortable place and understanding the roles that we've played in our society that have actually prevented us from arriving into Jesus's vision for that kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God. And to add, Lori Beth, to what you're saying, um, friends, we have black brothers and sisters who are crying out and lamenting and grieving. And as we said earlier, our first call is to listen and and to learn, not not to try to lead. And we have this tendency to want to, to jump to solutions and actions and how do we fix this? But the reality is this is not our story to tell. And the folks whose story it is, they are still grieving and still lamenting and still processing. And so that's one of the reasons we have to follow their lead rather than trying to take the lead here. And I want to sort of close with this. A lot of times, um, and we like to to skip Good Friday, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, and jump to the resurrection, to victory, to triumph, to, as Jamar Tisby said in his process, to reconciliation right away. But we believe that, that the Holy Spirit's call here is for us as, as, a, as a white congregation in a predominantly white town to sit in this tension of, of this truth of, of racism and that we are a part of, of the majority and, and of the powerful who benefit from a system that, that oppresses people. And that is, is, is so hard and, and so difficult But again, God's call is for restorative mishpat or to justice, which has this relational component to it. And there's a call from Paul in 2 Corinthians. And it goes like this. 
it talks about this difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And that godly grief leads us to repentance and worldly grief leads to death. And in this particular instance, the godly grief that we need to have is to lament with and for our brothers and sisters of color and allow them to disciple us and teach us and to lead what are the next steps as we move towards reconciliation. And so we have to examine ourselves and be ready to pick up our cross as Jesus has called us to, to lay down what needs to die in order that, that, that God's vision uh, for the kingdom of heaven might begin to take root in, at Boone UMC and in Boone, North Carolina. Amen.